Hi friends, welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. No matter what your hopes, dreams, or aspirations may be, each of these conversations on the She Said, She Said platform are designed to provide you with food for thought, insight, advice, and perspective from women who have lived this journey already, who are sharing their stories and their perspectives to help you, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. My guest today in episode 117 is the amazing Maggie Craddock. Maggie is the president and founder of Workplace Relationships. It is an executive coaching firm. She is also an author three times over with her latest book uh, just coming out in August called Lifeboat, Navigating Unexpected Career Change and Disruption. She uses the story of the Titanic as the backdrop for powerful leadership lessons about what happens and how we often react in crisis. One of the most interesting stories that she tells in the book and uses it as an illustration of leadership lessons is what happened with lifeboat number six. And for those who don't know, lifeboat number six included, among other passengers, a very famous woman named Margaret Brown. Margaret Brown, of course, became known as the unsinkable Molly Brown in the play by the same name. But in the book, Lifeboat, Maggie talks about what we can learn from Margaret's example and also from the example of those who maybe were a bit more counterproductive, shall we say, in terms of how they dealt with this crisis or didn't deal with it. It's a fantastic way of thinking about this moment in time where there is so much uncertainty and how we deal with that and the mindset that we approach these challenges with. Maggie will also talk about her own story and her career evolution and how we can all be better prepared for the inevitable challenges that occur throughout our lives. So with that, Maggie, welcome to She Said, She Said. Well, Laura, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I have been really excited to, to talk to you this morning because I love the book. But before we get into that, talk a little bit about what you do. You are an executive coach, but why do people come to you? I think people come to me, Laura, very smart, uh, experienced people when they realize that they've hit a situation that they just can't think themselves through anymore. You know, I tell my clients all the time, my job really isn't to get you to listen to me. Although when we have strong advice, I, I hope they do because there's some experience there. But my job is to get you to listen more carefully to yourself. Interesting. To tune in, right, to the emotional wisdom that we know you've already got, except when things are anxious, when people are pressured. Sometimes the most brilliant people find that their brains flatline. And they don't have access to the logic they have under more normal circumstances. Why would somebody come to you, though, versus going to a therapist? Like, how do you decide if you need an executive coach versus some other kind of help? Well, you know, I, I think what we do with coaching is we have a very disciplined approach to helping people learn how to trust their decision-making process and cultivate emotional agility under pressure. 
So most of us actually have conditioned responses that kick in faster than the speed of thought. They can go to how we react to people under pressure if we're tongue-tied when we you know, want to speak truth to power. And many people come to me and they've, they've heard me speak, they've heard me in presentations over the years, and suddenly I get a call, we may have even talked in a networking meeting, and they say, Maggie, I just did something and that wasn't me. I just blurted out something on national television I wish I could take back or I really had my opportunity to speak truth to power and ab- actually no voice came out of my throat that wasn't me and my answer is yeah, yes it was you and it's a little bit of a power style learning moment because people's conversations with themselves and connection with themselves can break down under pressure when they're so busy keeping that game face on that they're suppressing a lot of things that can pop out sideways when they least expect it. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a matter of changing yourself, although it might be, but a matter of understanding why you uh, reacted in that way. Is that fair to say? I think that's really a fair way of putting it, Laura. I think we all operate from a series of strengths and blind spots that are often conditioned responses from systems we've been in along the way, family systems, workplace systems, community systems, right? And what we want to do is cultivate the ability to be present, to listen and react in the present moment in a more even-handed way, right? And not sort of lapse into some narrative where we find ourselves, you know, justifying losing our temper or creating some narrative that is really disempowering us and not showing us what our authentic strengths are in the moment. And when people learn that inner alignment, which is Mm -hmm. one of the things we talk about in coaching, they're better able to present themselves formally and informally in a wide variety of contexts and do things like negotiate conflict in a way that fortifies their personal integrity rather than diminishing it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how sort of people have come to you during this period of COVID and what some of the challenges are that they're dealing with. You know, because many people have had such disruption at all levels of their life right now, Laura, in terms of how they're parenting, concerns about getting their kids back to school, concerns about modeling the kinds of emotional agility we want our kids to have when now they're learning online and they're not in contact in person as much with other kids. I've had a lot of people talk to me about sometimes the conversations with themselves are breaking down because they don't get a moment off stage. Mm. They're getting off a Zoom call and their kids are right there, right? right? Or they're doing something and they have to immediately be on and switch those gears from their professional role to their personal role without any chance to sort of like hit regroup in between. That's such a great, that's such a great point. I hadn't thought about it that way. It's a little tough, right? Yeah. Because one minute, maybe you've, you've lost an important document, heaven forbid, lost an important client. And right as you're trying to regroup from that, one of your kids comes thundering in and they're worried about their laundry or is somebody going to make them a sandwich or something like this. <laughs> and we all, right? And yes. we all want to be our best selves with all people. But it's also been a fascinating crucible for people to learn about themselves because, you know, your ability to respond with, with humor and, and good natured in, in, in an even tempered way under those kinds of moments is pretty close sometimes to the conversations we have with ourselves. And and what I tell people all the time is under conditions like these, where there's so many different pressures, it's vital 
that we be patient and compassionate with ourselves and don't try to suppress our feelings. Mm -hmm. Tune into what those are and possibly one of the most powerful things we can teach those we love, whether we're taking care of elder parents or kids or anything like this, is not to make it all look so easy or not to just distract ourselves from our feelings by binge watching television or making another round of chocolate chip cookies, right? <laughs> you know, here we go again. Yes. But just getting in there and saying, hey, you know, I'm going to take a minute. I'm feeling frustrated. It's not emotionally exaggerated. It's not the end of the world. You know, I'm feeling frustrated. I'm going to take a walk. And sometimes with your kids, do you want to come with me? You know, mom's got a little pent up energy. I'm going to go, you know, take a lap around the block. Do you want to come? So our kids realize that they don't have to pretend everything's fine. They don't have to exaggerate their own emotions to justify having them or create some crazy narrative around them. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be un impatient. And we've got constructive ways of doing, dealing with that so that you can get back into perspective and do the next right thing in the present moment. Yeah, that role modeling is so incredibly powerful. Isn't it That's important? A, yeah, really, really love that. Okay, it's a great segue to talk about your latest really fabulous <laughs> book. I love this book, Maggie. I really did. I, I talk about that in the intro. I think it's terrific. It's called Lifeboat, Navigating Unexpected Career Change and Disruption. You're using the Titanic and what happened both as it led up to this crisis, but also what happened with the survivors. Talk about the inspiration for this book. Why the Titanic? Well, you know, I think that the story of the Titanic is timeless for so many of us because those questions that people ask themselves at a very human level, those survivors on the Titanic, are actually similar to some of the same questions we're facing today, right? For sure, you know, yes. How, how bad will this get? <laughs> how long will it last? I mean, who can I trust? The uncertainty, like, right? The uncertainty. And how will going through all this change me, right? Just those basic human questions. And I think what the Titanic story shows us is that the skills we need to survive challenges when it's business as usual are definitely not the same skills that we need to cultivate when we're facing extraordinary change and disruption. And I do feel that we're going through a historic moment, Laura, in terms of all of the turmoil that's taking place in the professional landscape and the healthcare landscape politically around the world right now. There's just an awful lot of things bubbling up at once, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the arc of the whole Titanic story, I think we've all got our own associations with this story. Some people love the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. I do too. I happen to love that early book that I talk about finding when I was cleaning out my childhood home, right? Mm -hmm. That has stuck with me for years when I talk about this because I fell in love with the real stories of the survivors behind that. And I think one of the most important things for people to bear in mind in terms of how this story of the Titanic is so helpful in terms of helping us learn the lessons we need to, to really thrive in the face of unexpected change is to bear in mind that there's this thing I talk about throughout the book, this shift from big ship thinking to lifeboat thinking. Right? So big ship thinking? The big ship mindset, right? Mm -hmm. That mindset that people had when they bought that ticket, launched that boat and took off on that journey, right? Everybody came in with a narrative, a story, and a role. And then the, how that shifted to the lifeboat mindset. 
And what I think is particularly important for people going through all the changes we're facing in the world today to bear in mind is that mindset and the way we think about the Titanic story helps us understand that what took that ship down started before it ever left port. Mm. Right? When they were building the ship, they were cutting corners, they were trying to move quickly. As we know, they didn't have enough lifeboats, right? right. <laughs> they take off, they're going through the Atlantic a lot more quickly than they needed to because this was larger than life. It was impression management. And because of that, that big ship mindset, and there's nothing wrong with it, it's just understandable, left the people involved with this idea that everyone had a role to play, right? Where they were in the passenger list, where they were in the crew. If you have uncomfortable feelings, just suppress them, keep your game face on, stay busy, as busy as you can, and faster is better. And who can't identify with all that under pressure, right? Sure. But of course, if you're doing a little too quickly to see the red flags you need to see, that can be a problem. And then where the whole mindset shifts is when you picture people who'd bought their ticket, got on board this ship, suddenly, before they know what happened, they're huddled together in tiny watercraft in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They don't really know each other. Their lives are on the line. And the thing about the story that is so timeless for us today is that on that lifeboat, they were in a situation where there are more questions than answers. And that's what we're facing in our lives and careers and raising our families today. More questions than answers. And the things that come out of that that are timeless lessons for all of us are things like be present at a very human level. Stay in the present moment, right? Other people matter. There are things you cannot do by yourself. Sometimes it's the very physical actions we go through keeping our families together. Sometimes it's the kind of perspective we need in our careers. And definitely can't roll a lifeboat across the icy ocean alone. And then this idea of aligning your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions in the present moment. Instead of rushing around, take those strategic pauses and make sure that you're being true to yourself under pressure because at a very human level, we're defining success from the inside out, not the outside in. And we can't do that from the perspective of a false self. That What's, will cause us to freeze. Yeah, right? that's so well said. Maybe let's dig into a couple of these themes and this notion of pausing, which makes all the sense in the world when we're sitting here talking about it, right? In, mm -hmm. in the abstract. But the reality is when you're in that moment, whether you're, and God forbid, you're on a sinking ship or, or you're in, <laughs> you know, facing a corporate disaster or a personal crisis, what's your advice for people in learning how to pause, in learning how to be present in that moment when, I mean, literally, the, you know, excuse me, the shit's hitting the fan. Like, it's just more, you know, you're drinking from a fire hose, use any analogy. How do you do that? You know, Laura, I'm so glad you asked because there's a lot of discussion of pausing in the global conversation. We mm -hmm. all pay lip service to it now. You know, you know, you need to pause. Oh, right. Oh, right. You know, right. And that is definitely not what comes naturally when adrenaline is flooding through our systems. Right. It's like someone telling you to relax. Don't tell me to relax. Right? <laughs> yes. So, so I, the first thing I, I say with pausing is I invite people to do it imperfectly. Okay. I can't tell you the number of times I've had a client jump on the phone with me and say, Maggie, I tried. I was in my staff meeting. They just weren't getting it. I tried taking that strategic pause and I had to step 
out of the meeting and call you because I'm so frustrated and the stakes are so high right now. I'm like, good for you. You know, you need to do it. Get right back in there. One thing that helps people develop that emotional uh, muscle around pausing is if they can just take 10 to 15 minutes in the course of a day, any day, and try to do everything they're doing at half their normal speed. Hmm. It sort of helps you understand how quickly your brain cycles through your to-do list, how acclimated we are to multitasking, and really in many ways, how cut off we are from just being present right in that moment and really getting touched with what we feel and how those feelings are creating a narrative and an interplay of thoughts within us. We get dragged off track all the time with this. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how many wonderful senior executive women I work with who are amazingly compassionate and patient with their children, with their family members, with their spouse, with their parent, often sometimes with people they're mentoring and their own staff and employees, and they're so tough on themselves. They cannot admit to some of the feelings they're experiencing. And if they could normalize those and just face them, you know, it's, it's not just that I'm, I'm anxious. It's actually that I'm very disappointed and frustrated. Mm. Face it, work through it, the moment's over, right? Yeah. The same way they would help another person with it. But we do need to pause. And when you first begin to pause, there's likely to be a lot of churning pent up energy inside you that wants a release, kind of like a volcano. So your mind will come up with a whole lot of reasons why you need to speed up again. It's very natural. But the more you discipline yourself in pausing, the more aware you become of what's actually unfolding in the present moment and how some of the habitual emotional triggers that take you off course, things that are the pet peeves for all of us. For some people, it's people who aren't supporting others, right? For some people, it's people who are bullies or who are, you know, just, just, just uh, trying to get their own way at the expense of the greater good, whatever your pet peeve is. But when you stop and you start paying attention to what's going on inside you and you work really hard through a checklist I talk about a lot in terms of how we give other people the benefit of the doubt, what other things could be unfolding for them? How do we take a pause and find a better way to get this moment back on stream, right? You find that you can train yourself to do it. And the more you train yourself to do it, the more you train yourself to have compassion with yourself under pressure, the easier it gets to diffuse things with others. I've had clients come back to me and say, Maggie, I was in a meeting. It got tense. Somebody said just the perfect thing that brought a little bit of humor into it. Everybody laughed and all the tension dissipated. And suddenly I realized that person was me. Mm. Who knew? <laughs> I've been so used to just trying to even things out and get the excessive drama out of how I'm dealing with myself that now it's begun to happen naturally when I'm dealing with other people. Yeah. Do you see gender differences at all? Or is this really sort of a phenomenon that affects men and women kind of equally and how they react to, to the challenges with taking that pause? No, I, I see a lot of gender differences because a lot of my research work has been around power styles. Mm. Uh, I've done some articles and wrote a, a previous book called Power Genes for Harvard. And when I did that, I had the chance to talk to people with different power styles all around the world. 
military leaders, spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, you name it, sort of trying to look at how they wielded and responded to power and what they had in common. And I found out that a very central component of any power style is that it's essentially relational, right? It's rooted in our relationships with ourselves, which we've sort of been talking about, but that plays out also into your relationships with groups and others. And when I study power styles, I find that many women in the first system they were ever in in life, the family system, are socialized often. Now, this is a generality. There are exceptions to this. But women are largely socialized to try to be good enough in their caretaking roles towards others. So I've had extremely seasoned senior executive women who are just, just fearsome on the job and brilliant still call me up in some of those conversations they have with themselves and say, you know, I still worry. Am I a good enough wife? Am I a good enough mother? Am I a good enough board member? Am I a good enough date? Right. You know, they're always trying to meet those relational needs, right? And so sometimes um, the way that they can overdo it or underdo it is related to the frustrations of feeling that they need to put other people's concerns ahead of their own. And of course, in an environment right now where people's physical safety is on the line, you know how important that is for women to make sure, and for men too, but as women, as caretakers, as mothers, we really get in there around wanting to know our kids' teachers and how are they doing and how do we support them and different children learn differently and all of these nuances that we're so tuned into, right? I mean, even our definition of success needs to encompass our ability to be there and our sense of being able to be responsible in those roles. Now, men are very keyed into this too, more and more, and we're all trying to raise our sons in such a way that they understand all of these different nuances. But depending upon your generation, and depending upon the power style of your parents, some young men are actually socialized to sort of expect power in a group and be more competitive purely around these issues of power and financial power, right? You know, the hierarchy and financial mm -hmm. power. And women have such a broad range, such a diverse range of things they're looking at in terms of how they assess their own effectiveness. I think that's, uh, that comes into play in all of this. Yeah, so fascinating. So fascinating. Um, all the more so, you use as one of the central characters in the book, um, one of several, you talk about Lifeboat number six, which of course included Margaret Brown. And when you take what you just said about the differences between men and women, again, generalizing, but think about a woman of her generation oh. and the role that she played as it relates to this. So for those who don't know, let's talk a little bit about lifeboat number six, some of those leadership lessons and specifically about Margaret Brown. Well, thank you, Laura, because this, I think, is a real crucible for all of us to consider in terms of how people's relationships with themselves can then impact their ability to work with the energy of a group, right? Mm -hmm. So when Robert Hitchens was put in formal command of lifeboat number six, and one of the interesting things about Hitchens is he'd been the guy 
whose hands were actually on the wheel of the Titanic, the ship writ large, when it was moving full speed ahead towards that iceberg. But he was a, a more junior person, right? Correct. Because he was a more junior person in one of history's most tragic examples of responsibility without authority, right? right. The poor guy was not authorized to turn the ship, even though he'd heard the iceberg warnings from Frederick Fleet, because his superior officer was out of the wheelhouse at the time, and there were a whole lot of reasons there was nobody there. And he got the order to turn it at the last moment. But of course, that came too late. And as we know, tragedy ensued, right? So meanwhile, he's got all this trauma rattling around inside his being. But we're all operating under this constant adrenaline and pressure on the Titanic. He's put in charge of lifeboat number six. He, and Frederick Fleet, incidentally, and another gentleman, Arthur Puchin, are the only three guys on a lifeboat where there are over 40 women loaded, many of them from first class, and one of them is Margaret Brown. So when they lower this lifeboat into the water, here's Hitchens going through whatever he's going through, trying to maintain that image, that role we talk about, right, from the big ship mindset. I'm in charge. Here's my rank. Here's what we're going to do. It's not going well. He's breaking down under pressure because we can only imagine the suppressed feelings he's dealing with. But whatever's going on in his psyche, he's telling everybody they're doomed. He's refusing to row. He's becoming pessimistic. He's turning into himself and he's not leading effectively, right? And the problem is all these women aren't strong enough to pull those oars through the water on the boat. So here's Margaret Brown a gracefully aging grandmother and divorcee who only got on that boat in the first place to get to the side of her sick grandchild, right? Mm -hmm. So she's watching the other women and she's trying to observe in the present moment what she can do to help, how she can support. So she looks out and she sees other people from steerage who, you know, a lot of the people from first class came on with clothes and furs and everything. She's taking off items of warm clothing and she's putting them on shivering people. She's listening to the other women from first class who are used to having things smoothed over for them. And Laura, things are not going smoothly. <laughs> She's exactly. talking them through a little bit of that frustration so we don't have a mutiny in this quadrant on the boat, right? And then I think in one of the most remarkable moments, she gets this great idea. She realizes we're not strong enough to do this individually as women, but if we organize two to an oar, we can move through the water. Hmm. And then they're warm. They're more likely to survive and they're moving and Hitchens doesn't like it. He sees it. He's still caught up in that old definition of who he was. He's not in the present and he tries to stop her. And that's where I think she actually cultivated a strength she didn't even know she was capable of. She rose up on that lifeboat and she shot him down. And she told Hitchens, if you don't stand down and stop with the pessimism, we're going to throw you overboard. And everyone else on that boat rallied around her. She became the informal leader. I tell people all the time, I don't think Margaret Brown got on that boat with a naval career in mind. Right. <laughs> right? I don't think she was thinking her way through this. Right. I think she aligned her feelings and her thoughts and her actions in the present moment. And that's how greatness found her. Yeah. I mean, such a fascinating story. It really, I mean, folks need to read the book to get the sort of full context. Um, but it's just, it's an amazing, amazing story. Let's talk a little bit about how thinking about today, how do we find that inner strength under pressure? We talked a moment ago about the importance of pausing, but maybe other thoughts around how we really 
dig deep and find that strength that we may not even know we have? Well, I think that that's such a lovely question, Laura, and so important for all of us because one of the skills at the heart of Lifeboat is emotional agility. And emotional agility is a skill that can be learned. And we learn this in our conversations with ourselves by tackling what I call the inner iceberg in the book, right? I talk about how when we have these responses where our brain starts to race or we start to feel a little tense to get in touch with those cues because often how we're thinking in the moment is rooted in some past feelings that we may want to take some time and explore. Because under normal circumstances, most people's thinking is fairly logical, hopefully strategic, probably objective. But under pressure, thinking becomes skewed. It becomes polarized. We get into black and white thinking, right? They're for us or against us. And similarly, those emotional triggers that prompt our ideas and also color them. Under normal circumstances, we can usually keep our game face on, handle a certain amount of frustration, right? But as we've discussed earlier in this conversation, those emotional triggers can hijack you and cause you to create a narrative where you're casting yourself as a victim to justify how you're behaving. We go right back to what we were just saying about, our, about Robert Hitchens in that lifeboat. He must have created some narrative that justified him sitting there. They don't understand me. They don't understand the problems. I don't know what the narrative was, but it wasn't effective in the present moment. It was, was pulling him into some kind of undertow from his past. So there's that about trying to align those thoughts and feelings with what's going on. And I think it's also important to remember the value of other people. Even as we're raising our kids, we want them to be in touch with their feelings. But we also want them to be in touch with the way that other people feel about themselves when they've been in their presence, not just their feelings. Mm -hmm. Other people have reactions too, right? Based on their backgrounds. So I think one of the things that comes out of the lifeboat process that's very valuable for all of us in our personal and in our professional lives is something that I call lifeboat feedback. It's how you make sure that you've got people in your life that you can go to and you can really be emotionally honest with and they will listen to you in such a way that they're not trying to one-up you by offering unsolicited advice, but they're actually trying to listen to make sure that you're being true to yourself under pressure, right? Mm -hmm. We've all got these people. Sometimes it's our spouse, sometimes it's a close friend. I don't know, but those people that you can really call when you need to, right? Mm -hmm. We need to invest in those types of highly human and personal relationships so that when we think we're coming off course we can describe a situation to someone and say you know do i sound like i'm being emotionally honest here or are there feelings i might be suppressing right mm -hmm. am i judging another person fairly or you know am i sort of thinking of something in the past and maybe casting them in that light am i being clear with myself about my motives here if i'm not why not that keeps us aligned with our values and keeps us on the beam under pressure. Because again, when we're making these big decisions, where can I work? Where will I thrive? Do I need to change jobs? What do my kids really need to learn to get the, the socialization they need to be able to be effective and competitive in this workplace, right? Mm -hmm. It's not all about the logic. It's also about how we process powerful emotions and how we connect effectively with other people, and particularly under pressure. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit specifically about 
career evolution, really career and personal evolution, which is a fact of life, but is not always presented in a manner in which people understand and know that this is going to happen. You are going to evolve, and you should be evolving um, in every job that you have, evolving and recreating and, and continuing to grow. But it can seem to be a topic that can be difficult for people, especially when they're forced to make a pivot that's unexpected. Maybe they're laid off. And I think the current environment is a great example of so many people having to deal with an, an evolution, uh, a change that they didn't see coming, and this pivot that's required. Maybe talk a little bit about um, the best way to navigate that as we look at the learnings from um, Lifeboat and how we can think about career evolution in that context. Well, thank you for that question, Laura, because I think it goes to the core of the methodology I've tried to work with with clients for the past 20 years. And the timing about around Lifeboat has just been incredible for this. Yeah. But the point of the matter is that there's, there's a lot of great tactical advice out there for people about how to check their resumes, how to network, how to do a lot of cognitive tactical tasks, right? But when it comes to these things like, is it time to leave a current job? Do I have the money to do this? Is this the right thing for my emotional stability at this time, right? Many people actually get discouraged around career work because they've missed an important pre-step that Lifeboat talks about. And I think it's really critical to do this pre-step so that you can apply other strategies in a, in a more effective way for you. And that is, they can go through career prioritization and whole sorts of things, but they're operating from the perspective of that false self. Mm. They're trying to be who other people expect them to be. So one of the places that we suggest people start all the time in terms of their career work is really understanding things like, what did you learn in your family system about what success was? What was the sense of purpose your parents got from their life paths, whether that was working full time, going back and forth as a homemaker, what have you? What, what role did you learn that money plays in your definition of success? You know, for some people, it's being validated as a provider. For other people, it's a sense of security in an insecure world. But whatever it is, let's nail that down, right? So that's not actually capsizing your career decisions. Let's go to a lot of these things that we often don't take that pause and really think about carefully because they're impacting our thought process under pressure and particularly for very gifted, brilliant people whose minds have been trained to work quickly, right? Sometimes we need to pause because they can find themselves doing things and suddenly going, wait, wait, that's the way I answered all these questions. That's the way I prioritized everything in terms of my career, but that's actually not how I really feel. That's what my dad always wanted me to do or what my partner thinks is a safe thing for us. But this isn't really where I'm going, right? And then we also need to balance that with what I always call that strategic fit. Understanding what you'd love to do is great, but practically in a difficult world, we have to make sure that you're going to be paid fairly and consistently in order to do it right? Otherwise, we're just dreaming and we're having a beautiful talking circle and I love them too, right? But let's ground this in terms of the return on your investment in terms of doing some of this career work. So getting it going from a genuine perspective of your authentic self is very important. 
And the two components of that are really, I think a lot of the work that we do in coaching around understanding the history in your family system, mm-hmm. understanding how watching what your dad did for a living when he looked in the mirror in the morning, did he like who looked back at him? Did he feel accepted and respected and, you know, in his role as a provider and in his role as a, a, the, the father of the family, right? And the same thing for your mother. What did she do with the prime years of her life? And most importantly, Laura, was she happy? Yeah. Was she happy? And what can we learn from all of that? Because that impacts those conversations that bubble up at two o'clock in the morning when people just aren't sure. For sure. I mean, all, I mean, that is so incredibly well said. And it also strikes me too, that it goes to this notion of how you value yourself and your work and how you think about your contribution to maybe the organization that you're leaving or the one that you might be interested in joining or what you're trying to create for yourself, how you think about that personal value is really related to that too. Laura, I love that you said that because in some of the first drafts of Lifeboat, and you know, all my books have taken me about five years to write. Is that right? Yeah, they all take a long time. So I never thought that the timing of Lifeboat would be this extraordinary, but of course I wouldn't have wished these conditions on the world either, right? right? But one of the pivotal statements that I was bringing out when I thought about Margaret Brown and how that exemplifies that alignment is just simply, you can't be of genuine value to others until you've learned to be true to yourself. Yeah. You just can't. Love that. Yeah, I really love that. Okay. I mean, I could talk to you all day and into tomorrow, but because we don't have that much time, I do, I do want to pivot and talk about your own, your own story a bit, um, because you faced a pretty significant career um, evolution and reinvention as well, which put you on a very different path. Maybe talk about what happened in your own life and how that shifted your perspective and you know, when you began to embrace this type of work. You know, I, I, I've had a couple of aha moments along the way. I think we all have, but one of the most important for me uh, was actually when I was at an investor conference in Laguna Beach. And uh, my team and I had just won something called the Lipper Award. So we had the top performing mutual fund in the nation and I'm my pictures in buildings and I'm in newspapers and magazines and all this great stuff is happening, right? But one of the reasons that it happened was that my team and I really spent a lot of time investing in and working on our communication strategy with each other, Mm. right? Um, as they were absolutely fantastic. Many of them were older than I was, much more seasoned in specific investments. And we had, you know, I, I spared no expense in terms of making sure that we had hired consultants and people to come in and help us with a lot of stuff. But I began to realize over time that what people could teach us theoretically, what they could give us in terms of, you know, tactical tips and advice, while helpful, didn't always go to the felt sense of what people went through when they were under so much pressure with a big position and actually worried about being, you know, the fiduciary stewards of other people's retirement income. That's a lot of pressure when you really care about your job and everyone on our team did, right? That you had to look at how people operated under normal circumstances and what happened to their thought process under pressure. So I'm getting this award in Laguna Beach and I'm thanking my team and it's all gone so well. And here comes Michael Lipper actually calling, you know, and I congratulate you. And I realized there's, there's something more. Mm-hmm. There's something more that I want to do with my life. And it surprised me, you know? 
Because but you would, had been on, you'd been on Wall Street for how many years at this point? I've been on Wall Street for, I, I, I'd say it had a very, I'd been around Wall Street and working as a research analyst for some time, but I'd had a really successful career run then for about a decade, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, presenting to boards of directors the whole nine yards, right? And then I, but I had been going away on the weekends on my own, sort of to, you know, go to meditation retreats or spiritual retreats or any place that was really quiet. And thinking about the human element about how we worked together mm. to take our best thinking to course correct to help our investors. And then I realized, you know, as exciting as this is, my passion really isn't in helping people develop more lucrative investment portfolios. My genuine passion is about helping people put together more meaningful lives and take what they can learn about the most precious resources we all have, which is our energy and time while we've got it, and put it together in such a way that they get their lives and their careers on track. Because if there's one thing that I've always realized, and I've been privileged to realize this, is that all resources aren't monetary. And I think we see that right now when we're seeing a lot of really fascinating things go on as the performance of the actual economy and the performance of the capital markets kind of starts to decouple, yeah. right? The motivation that it takes to maintain a workforce, right? The way that we communicate so that we can nurture new talent and help them, you know, through the ranks so that they become fully functioning professionals. There's some things you cannot buy. And loyalty and focus are two of them when you need it the most, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think you've given us uh, a great maybe definition of how you think about impact. But if I ask you the specific question, what impact do you hope to have? Would you answer it differently? Well, the impact I hope to have is that people really take this step back and understand at all levels that while the conversations they have with other people are critical, it's the conversations they have with themselves that are going to be most important in their lives and careers. Because it's the conversations we have with ourselves, and Laura, you and I both had them because we both made that transition from corporate America to a different lens on what we're doing. Right? Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's the conversations we have with ourselves that give us the emotional resilience and the courage to actually try something new, Yeah. to think outside the box. It's the conversations we have with ourselves that help us define success from the inside out. And I firmly believe that when people do that, they actually uh, operate in a more authentic and genuine manner and a more compassionate one. And I think it's the conversations we have with ourselves when we're looking where we're going to thrive that really reminds people of how important it is to align themselves with organizations that reinforce their core values and when necessary, make a healthy break with those that don't. Because what happens to you when you join the group energy of an organization is it will impact every facet of your life. It will start to shape your values. It will shape the norms and the patience you have with yourself and those you love, even when you power that laptop down. And most importantly, it will begin to shape your sense of self and how creatively and how motivationally you're able to reinvent when you need to. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. I ask um, each person who comes on for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or maybe a mantra, what would be yours? My single piece of advice for everyone would be you can have a good career if you're smart, but you're only going to have a great career if you're brave, mm -hmm. right? 
And that kind of courage is the courage to really look within and be real about what's going on inside you. Because if it's true for you, it's true for others as well. Yeah, very well said. Maggie, thank you so much. The book is called Lifeboat. I will include a link to it as well as Maggie's terrific website in the show notes for this episode. I so appreciate you being here. This was just fantastic. I loved it. Laura, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this as well. Thank you. Take care. Friends, thanks so much for sharing your time with us today. I hope you found as much value in my conversation with Maggie Craddock as I did. She is truly a fabulous, fabulous resource. You'll find more perspective and advice like Maggie's on our She Said, She Said podcast.com website, as well as wherever you download podcasts. I also have a little favor. If you're enjoying this podcast and these conversations, I would be so very grateful for a nice review. I also love hearing your feedback. So you can always shoot me an email directly at laura at lauracoxkaplan.net. Most of all, I'm grateful for your time. I hope you're finding value in these conversations and I look forward to seeing you next week. Take care.